Hey everybody, welcome to the Pre-Accident Podcast. I'm Todd Conklin, your host. This is part two of a two-part special on a conversation between Jay Allen and myself. So if you've not listened to part one, you probably should go back and listen to part one before you listen to part two. Although I'm not 100% convinced it would make any difference, it feels like the right thing to say to you guys because, you know, I always want to lead you in the right direction or at least as close as I can to the right direction. That's what I'm going for anyway. So how are you? How was the week? Good? Anything exciting happen? I'm trying to think what's good going on here. Man, it's, it's uh, this, I'm, you know, I always try to slow down in the summer. That's my goal because one of my favorite things to do is sit in my front garden. So Santa, if you've never been to Santa Fe, the houses are, are small brown adobe houses. The house is built of mud. And we have a lot of, um, I don't know what you'd call them, sort of private gardens. So it's, it's common to build a wall around a little outdoor space that's just yours. And then inside that outdoor space, you, you, you do things with it. You plant plants and, you know, usually water tolerant or drought tolerant plants that um, will make it in a place like New Mexico. And then you kind of make that your private outdoor space and you kind of move from indoors to outdoors for about a half a year. And it's really, it's, it's uh, super nice. So I have one of those, you know, I have a little uh, private garden and I've got Edison lights, LED Edison lights hanging over the top of it, which is really nice. It gives this kind of warm, soft glow to it. And then I've told you before the great outdoor TV experiment, I have an outdoor TV that is just, uh, just works like a dream. It just keeps working. I, I bought the cheapest flat screen TV I could find because I didn't think it would make it through the winter and it's, uh, completely made it through the winter without problems. So now I wish I had a better TV, but it's fine. I mean, it works great. Little sound system out there, some nice chairs, you know, a little fire pit, all that kind of stuff, barbecue grill. That's kind of where I hang out and make things happen. So that's cool. So that's that's what I've been doing. And then we're really working desperately on this workshop we're going to do in October. So the October workshop, um, which is in Vegas, which I know some people have, um, it's uh, some people it's hard for you to travel to Vegas, but Vegas is a, is a good place for us to have this workshop for a couple of reasons. But we're thinking about doing this uh, three-day sort of deep dive workshop. Uh, one of the days, maybe even two, we're still talking about it, will be focused almost entirely on investigations. So we're going to really talk about not how to do investigations, because I'm not sure I know how to tell you how to do investigations. Every investigation I've ever done is different. But how to think about doing investigations, and then how to code information, and how to cover information, and how to look and seek and find counterfactuals, and how to actually write corrective actions based upon the analysis from your investigation protocol, and then use those corrective actions not as things to do, but in fact as judgments of need. And we can talk about this in great detail. Well, in fact, we will. We're going to take a couple of days to do that for sure. And then the first day, it looks like it's probably going to be a foundations class because there's always a need for that. And I've got a brand new foundations class that I can't wait for you to see. And then after that, there'll probably be a, some kind of learning class because we need to do that. And that'll roll right into an investigations class. Three days in Vegas, it's cheap as chips. Um, and if you're interested, you, um, you could be a part of it. You'll want to contact Office Todd Conklin at gmail.com. No dots. Just Office Todd Conklin, which will put you in touch with Brent. And Brent can get you signed up and registered and in the class. It's in the uh, Hampton Inn Conference Center on Dean Martin. 
the one across from the In-N-Out Burger. We've done some meetings there before. It's a great conference facility, and it's a really good location because it's close to the Strip, but it's not on the Strip, and there's no casinos in the hotel. Zero. None. There, so if you want a casino in the hotel, do not stay there. Stay somewhere else. But if you're like me and get a little fatigued with the whole casino thing, it's a pretty good hotel for that. So that's coming up. Uh, that's October. The first week of October is when that is. Detail, it's uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Details on that you can have. I probably haven't talked about it very much. It's just kind of, uh, it's kind of been formulating. It's been percolating, as it will. And we'll see who plays along with it. There's some people that really want to get involved and uh, help be a part of it. And so I'm gonna, I'll give you those names as we get a little closer to it. But, but mark it on your calendar if you get a chance. So here comes part two. And part two, we're going to pick up at why the name pre-accident investigation, which Jay's really fixated on, which rolls into a discussion around Jenga blocks and sort of what this all illustrates and why we did it and what's going on there. And I think you'll find that that part of the uh, the the discussion that Jay and I have pretty interesting. I mean, it, at least it's it'll keep your attention, you know, while you're walking the dog. And really, that's all I. That's kind of the goal I go for anyway. So, so let's uh, let's get into that interview and see what comes out of that, and see what you think about what we talk about. So, without any further uh, monkeying around, here's Jay and Todd, part two of our discussion of the history of uh, human performance safety differently thinking from Todd Conklin's point of view. So then now we were, you're going forward. So now we go forward. Now the pre-accident investigation, now were you, did you choose that name? What was the, re, well, let me rephrase that. You chose that name for what reason? What was the purpose behind it? What clicked in your brain that that's what you wanted to do? I thought it had good, um, it, it, had, it was attractive. The name was attractive. And I thought it would bring in more traditional safety thinkers and be kind of unoffensive and easy for them to grab hold of. Because even the most traditional, hardcore, behavioral-based safety person can get behind the idea of a pre-accident investigation. And it was built around the idea of sort of this idea of, of pre, pre-mortems, which we kind of do in the Department of Energy, especially around like high explosives and stuff. Before you did a big, expensive experiment that you couldn't do many times, you would do a pre-mortem on it. And you'd say, okay, what are all the ways this could fail? And then you would actually dig into those and that, that was a technique we were really comfortable with in the DOE. And so I, I, I kind of went with that name because I thought it would be attractive. Well, then right now, well, it is a very attractive name, and nobody knew how well this name was going to stick, which this is the fun part. So now we, now we start going a few years down the road, and we're not going to get to better questions yet because before better questions occurs, you're still teaching and you're still going out to different organizations. But all of a sudden, the idea for the pre-accident investigation podcast occurs. And, and I look at that because if you go back to your first episode, you're pretty much saying that you were coerced into doing it. And it's not something you really wanted to do. But now we're talking hmm, four, or five, four or five years later almost now, and you're yeah, still five. doing it. Yeah, five, at least five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's so that all started with, um, with uh, so the book was really getting popular, which, again, was kind of weird for me. And a friend of mine, my friend Jeff Segler, he said, uh, you ought to, and he's kind of a new media guy. I mean, that's that's what he is, is a, a new media dude. He says, you need a, a YouTube channel. 
And I said, well, I don't want to do a YouTube channel because I don't look that good with a sh- with, without a shirt. <laughs> you don't have to be naked in YouTube. And I said, well, who's going to be on YouTube if you have clothes on? I mean, that's that's a waste. And he said, well, if you don't do a YouTube channel, you ought to do a podcast. And then he said to me, and you'll appreciate this, Jay. He said, you know, you were in radio a really long time. A podcast will be really simple for you, and you ought to try it. And so I thought, well, I mean – Maybe it'd be kind of fun. And what attracted me to the podcast was the fact that I got to buy a bunch of equipment, a bunch of sound equipment, um, which I don't know why that was attractive to me, but it was really attractive to me. So I ordered a, you know, a, the dream microphone that I always wanted, just in case you're wondering, it's a <laughs> SM7B. Nice. <laughs> that, that's a dreamy. I think it's a great microphone. It, it is. And then I ordered a little mixer and, uh, and I looked up on the internet how to do a podcast, and I was blown away. I mean, I was really surprised how easy it was to to actually do to not to I don't mean easy to do, but how easy it was to get your podcast up and out to the world. And um, so I started the podcast, and I never imagined. I don't know. Like I thought maybe fifty people would listen. Um, and I didn't imagine that it would be uh, a, a thing. I mean, no, I just, you're, you're being too kind. It's a juggernaut. You have thousands of listeners every day that download your podcast. Yeah, I know. It's weird. And the funny thing is that I started with the interviews. And the first interview I did was Martha Costa, who's amazing. Actually, it's funny. I met with her today. Um, and then I got like Tom Krause on there. And, and uh, it, it's funny because at first it was hard to get people on. But then when it got popular, then it was really easy to get people on. And now it's kind of the, it's almost the exact, it's now you have to be really selective because lots of people want to get on and sell stuff. And you don't, I mean, you don't necessarily want to be somebody's advertising thing. So that, that was really interesting. And and what's funny is it started out with just the interviews and I was going to do one a week because you learn in radio that consistency matters. And I knew nothing about podcasting except that I thought somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes was long enough. And that if I was consistent, I could probably get people to listen twice. And if I could get them to listen twice, I might be able to get them to listen three times. And so I started doing the podcast. And then Tanya Lagarmo, who who was the human performance person really early for Chevron, I mean, like maybe the first person in Chevron to start thinking about human performance, she said, why don't you do operational excellence or safety moments? Because we really have a need for those. And so I thought, well, that'd be really easy. So I could do two um, dumps a week. I could do a safety moment and I could do an interview. And that's probably sustainable. And so that's, that's kind of how the podcast started. Do you still feel the same way that you did when you first started as you do now about it? Or has there been change on how you look at it? That's a good question. Um, so I still, it's still really fun and it still doesn't feel like a lot of work. So that's good. I mean, that means I'll, I'll continue to do it because if it's fun to do and it's not a lot of work, um, I'll, I'll do it. It's, it's also pretty easy to get people on. So that makes it a little easier. And I like it. I, fe- I feel I feel like it's something I'll continue to do for a while as long as it has value. I do think it's interesting in that 
a lot of people listen to it. And so I, I think it is a really, it, it's doing exactly what I wanted it to do, which is really build a sense of community um, among the safety professionals and reliability professionals, really, who are thinking these new ideas. Because at first it was pretty lonely. And you would have these ideas and you'd go to a, a, an ASSE meeting at the time and you'd be the only person in the room who didn't think that looking at worker behavior for unsafe acts was valuable. And so you needed a place to go where you thought, oh, God, there, there are other people that are thinking the same thing I'm thinking. And we need to build community with those people. And, and it's been it's been pretty helpful. And, and so that was my goal. And at first I sold advertisements, kind of, I mean, not really, but I had, I had an advertiser or two at first because I, it was a way to buy the equipment because I, I just never imagined this would be a thing to invest in. So I thought, well, if I have to buy this, this microphone, which costs, you know, I don't know, what does one of these cost? 300 bucks or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go on the light end. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, then, then I need to sell an ad. And then somebody told me, I don't know, I was out someplace and they said, take those ads off. That's that. That's stupid. And I thought, well, you know, I don't really need to. I mean, I already paid for the $300 microphone. I might as well just take the ads off. So I just took the ads off. And, and in a way, Jay, that's been really interesting because that gives you a certain amount of freedom too because I don't really have to make anybody happy, I, you know. And and some podcasts really make people angry. Like there's a guy in Australia who hates me, but I think that's kind of fun. Well, you, you have to also under, understand for what you tell people, you're not the most loved individual because of the concepts that you're bringing up. So you right. know that. Well, and it's, they're, they're, they're controversial. They're less controversial now than they were 15 years ago. They're even kind of less controversial now than they were five years ago. Oh, absolutely. Now, let me ask you just a strange question. We're going to get to, to better questions here in a moment. But if you were to retire tomorrow, do you feel that you would continue with the podcast? Yeah, probably. Does it bring you that much joy? Yeah, it's pretty fun. I like it. Okay. It's really fun when you get to talk to people. I mean, it's, it's fun. You must like doing it, don't you? I love doing it. I've committed so much time to this. And of course, the, the radio station, which you know that you're on, we t- we re-air your podcast like it's, a, like it's a standard show. Oh, that's good. I think that's good. And more the merrier, man. I, and I like, it's, I'm amazed. I'm amazed at what, I'm amazed at how much good stuff people have to say. Like almost every time I've talked to a person, I, and I try to just have a conversation. Like I don't do pre-questions and I don't, I don't call them and rehearse stuff. No. I basically just, I connect with them and then I hit record. I try to hit record immediately so that w- even when we just start talking, we're recording. And, and then I just try to have the conversation. I never want to talk about what we're going to talk about beforehand because then we will have had the whole conversation in preparation to have the conversation. And the second time's not as good. And I, I'm kind of amazed at just how much, there's just been a ton of really interesting stuff, and I've learned a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton from what people have to say. Well, I think it's funny that you mentioned that because there's been times that we've been on the phone where you're like, don't talk about this to me because we're going to talk about it on the podcast. No. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, you don't, want, you don't want to have the conversation because some of the magic is, is just in having the conversation. Okay. I mean, it's, the first time you have it, that's kind of when these really fresh kind of green ideas squirt out, and then they become really interesting to think about. 
Absolutely. So right now, we're, let's go into 2016, and it's July right now. So you decide that it's going to be the release of pre-accident investigation, Better Questions. Better Questions, yeah. So what are you thinking between 2012 and to 2016 that you'd see the need for Better Questions? I start to realize that human error is not very interesting. In fact, it's so normal, it's kind of boring, and it's never causal. And I start to realize that the most important group that changes in this new view of safety, safety differently, is not the workforce, the guys at the coalface, they kind of know all this stuff. It's leadership. And then I start to realize really organically, I mean, I think I knew this all along, but I never saw it anywhere and I never really studied it academically. I start to realize that the power in facilitating change is not in the answers. The power in facilitating change is in the questions. And that if I can get leaders to ask better questions, then the rest of it, the answer part, is really, really, really simple. And so I start to put my emphasis on how leaders ask questions. Maybe a better question is this, or a better statement is this, what leaders ask when they ask those questions. And now I'm at a point, I mean, this is back when that book is written, when I'm relatively convinced that the, the response that leadership has to failure is everything. And what's funny is that in the early stages of human performance, and this is where Tony Mashar and I get a little bit crosswise, I would actually suggest that the impost stuff and the early, early, early DOE stuff was written towards the focus of fixing the worker. What I started to realize is that what we want to actually put our focus is on actually changing the way leaders lead for resilience. And that's when better questions becomes really an important part of it. And I write better questions mostly out of a desperate need to get people to sort of understand that if they want different answers, they have to ask different questions. And that's when sort of I come up with the idea that the enemy of the question is always the answer and that answers actually do something really, really negative. And that is that answers actually stop inquiry. And the moment we stop inquiry is the moment we stop being resilient. So are you thinking about learning teams during this time also as you're writing this? We've been thinking about learning teams a lot. I should tell you that learning teams, we never saw, I never saw learning teams as anything other than just a tool. And in fact, when they first started, they would have been in the toolbox, the, the, the book two, they wouldn't have been in book one because I just saw learning teams as a way to put together an ad hoc worker-centric group of people to understand and explain some kind of operational phenomenon, either success, failure, near miss, close call, good catch. And we use learning teams. We, we put learning teams together at Los Alamos because we got together and had a meeting where we had a bunch of really smart guys with the best intention have an accident. And my big boss, the director of the laboratory said, wouldn't it be great if we could just bring these people into a room, shut the door and say, what the hell happened? And I said, 
Well, I don't understand. I can't think of even one reason why we couldn't do that. In fact, let's do it. Did you have HR approval first? (laughs) We didn't ask for HR approval. I mean, we, we, it's funny. We didn't, we didn't think of it. We didn't think of it as an intervention. We thought of it as really a data collection tool. And so because it was a data collection tool, we, we never saw it as a formal activity. It was just something you do in order to get to better understanding of the operational phenomena, the operational upset. And so we never, we never saw it as a, we never contacted legal. We never contacted HR. It was just something we did and we started doing them. And of course, I mean, the story kind of writes itself, the, the guys loved it. I mean, they loved it. And because they loved it, we got really good data and the next time we had something happen, the boss said, you didn't do that again. So we did it again. And then the next time we did it again, and then I needed to train somebody else so they could facilitate doing it. So, cause I wasn't enough. And then pretty soon we decided we didn't really need facilitators. We just kind of needed to go. And then pretty soon they just took off. And what's weird, and this is kind of a good thing, but what's weird is, is they no longer were exclusively the property of safety that all of a sudden operations was doing all these learning teams, get the workers together, shut the door, ask them what happened. Right. And, and so now we're, once we had a pretty good understanding that we were doing, you know, we did 19 learning teams in a year, but the following year, we don't know how we, we, we probably did 600 learning teams, but we really never knew how many learning teams we did because they just sort of organically took off. It really wasn't until until Bob Edwards got really involved in his first learning team and, and, and they'd had a, an event where he, at his facility and I was there um, with General Electric helping them sort of run human performance. And he sort of took it and he kind of made it a, kind of a thing. And, and once it became a thing, then, then it became kind of, then HR got involved, then legal got involved, then it became kind of a kind of a bigger deal. And and I remember cautioning Bob. You know, I kept telling Bob, "It's learning teams aren't. A, they're not a. They're just a tool. They're a tool to help facilitate human performance." And he he kept saying, "Yeah, that's true, but they seem to be more than that." And he was right. I mean, they they definitely were more than that. And that kind of that kind of sort of set the stage for better questions. Cause you really do figure out pretty early. I mean, I shouldn't say it that way. You do figure out, I don't know if early is the right answer, but you do figure out that the power in our business is not in having answers. Answers are, are not that terribly important. The power in our business is asking the right questions. Now, I have to tell you that Bob has taken this book and actually ran with it as his own. Yeah, yeah. This from, especially from the classes that I've been in with that Bob Edwards has actually conducted. Now, yeah. I have to ask you a question. You did reference on pre-accident, the, the first one, that you were using a particular publisher that had done other books. But when you get to better questions, you change publishers. Was it re- I didn't change publishers. Ashgate went out of business. Okay. Well, <laughs> or, or got, got sold or something. I mean, mm-hmm. so CPC picked it up. I think that's who published the second book. And, um, and that was a problem because, because now Guy Loft, who, who took care of Decker, who took care of Hallnagel, he, he was like our, he was like the guy that sort of hugged us and made us feel good and sort of took care of us. He, he got moved out. I, I like, I don't think he went with, the new company. And so now we're in a company that, that 
barely gives a crap if an author lives or dies because they're, they're a big academic publishing house. And so they do a lot. And I had really, I had a lot of problems with CBC one, because they, they really, they, they really had a difficult time with version control of the document. In fact, the version that got published was not the final edited version. It was kind of the penultimate. It was either, it was either the second to the last version or the third to the last version. And they were doing all their editing and, layout work um, internationally. So they weren't doing it in the United States or in Europe. They were doing it, I believe it was done in India. So it was, it was really difficult. That book kind of bugs me because there's lots of, a ton of errors in it that, I mean, I don't think I corrected all of them because I never correct all the errors, but a lot of the really significant errors were pulled from that, but the wrong version got published. So that was kind of a drag. I think they've redone it. So I, I don't know. It's, you, the one thing you you should know, Jay, is you never go back and read books you write. Well, I don't know. You've recently read them. I've been no, reading them all. It's super boring when you read them on Audible. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question, because when it comes to the Jenga setup, I was always under the impression that you had watched the big short and it got you excited. <laughs> and then apparently I'm wrong because of how far back this goes. Oh, yeah, no, and, I think. I think the big short watch me is what I think happened. <laughs> it seems okay. that way for sure. So we started using this. So this is going to introduce a guy named Roger Cruz, who's great. I love Roger. I haven't talked to him in a long time. But Roger, so we used Jenga in the early, early human performance classes, but we used it as a, a team building exercise where we used Jenga and we used um, uh, skewers like you'd use for barbecuing, those pokey skewers. And we'd have people do exercises where they had to remove the jingas and it was kind of a fun little team building thing we did um but out of that we started actually thinking about jenga not as a as a team building exercise but really as a as kind of a it's not really a model but sort of as a representation of complexity and once we realized jenga represents complexity then when we would do an exercise where we would um, identify all the conditions that were present in order to make a failure be successful, then I started pulling Jenga to, to show, to kind of build this sort of visual metaphor of what a system, a complex system looks like when it's really, really brittle, when it's really fragile. And so we, we ran that Jenga exercise really early. Roger and I did it. Uh, Shane always had Jenga, but Shane kind of used them differently. He used them kind of as a, as a game. We started using Jenga to really represent complexity. And then Bill Rigo got together at Savannah River, and he started bringing Jenga and dominoes. So he could show a complex system and a linear system. And those are really actually two very good visual metaphors for either of those systems. And that became really a big part of, uh, of the way we did the instruction. And so the first book, the Jenga stack just made sense because we wanted to illustrate the complexity. And gosh, we've been doing Jenga a really, really, really long time. And other consultants and stuff it picked up on it pretty quickly and it it got a lot of legs but kind of nobody was doing it very they they weren't doing it at all like we were doing it at first but again we didn't we didn't really think anybody else would ever look at this stuff 
I needed a way to take a room full of physicists, PhD physicists, and illustrate to them the difference between the Newtonian classic scientific understanding of the universe and the more holistic, complex, adaptive understanding of the universe. And the Jenga stack really carried a lot of water easily, and it was a great and really powerful way to kind of end the class because you'd pull the, the last Jenga and knock the stack down, and then you'd ask this question. Like a room full of MIT PhD engineers, you'd, you'd ask them, is this last Jenga the root cause? And they'd all say, no, no, it's a collective sort of failure. This is a, this is a complex failure. And we'd actually show the complexity through the jinkas. Hey, everybody. So what'd you think? <laughs> so you want to know how the sausage is made? Well, uh, I think this is going to actually be a three-part episode because there's still 27 minutes left and we're done. We're out of time. And if I, if I hold true to the half hour thing, I got to hold true to the half hour thing. So everything I said at the beginning of the last episode and the first part of this episode is a lie because we're going to go to a surprise third part to this story because I think the third part, I was going to just cut it out, but actually I think it's kind of interesting because he asked some really interesting questions about, well, for instance, giving stuff away for free. So hold on. Next week will be part three and we'll get to the conclusion of this. I promise. I really do promise we'll get there. I think you'll find it interesting. So just be patient with me. Learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe. <laughs>